I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Fake. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Face to face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Well, welcome to uh, Face to Face. We've got a guest with us here today who uh, proves to be uh, very interesting. In fact, I know he is. I've had a quick chat with him already. Stephen Elphick is his name. He's a photographer. He's a wine connoisseur, but uh, more importantly, he's been actually judging wine since 1988. He's got quite a uh, bio, and I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about himself and and, uh, where we're heading today in today's conversation. So thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you, David. My pleasure. So... You've uh, so is connoisseur a fair comment about you uh, with respect to wine, or are you more of a photographer? Or are you a bit of both? How how would you describe yourself? I think I'm obsessed by both. <laughs> is that right? Okay. Uh, the wine uh, obsession started probably in the late '70s and uh, has taken me largely around the world to from Argentina to uh, Southern California and uh, through the viticulture regions of Canada from coast to coast, um, and with brief forays into uh, Washington, Oregon, New York, Pennsylvania, wow. okay. Ohio, etc. Uh, that uh, interest has also played out in, in the visual material that I've started in the 1990s as a, a part-time wine writer. Okay. There was really not much in the way of library of Canadian viticultural images uh, for me to draw on to augment the stories I was writing. And it seemed that it was a 
it needed a focus, a world stage, if you like, right. for the Canadian viticulture. As the regions expanded, uh, both in production and in, uh, how would you say, notoriety, right. good. Uh, there wasn't necessarily a good visual context for them. So I started making photographs in the, in the 1990s to reinforce my own image library and to bring material to the world at large. Right. So you, but you'd been, you'd been taking photos professionally for at least 10 years before you started doing the professional wine judging, correct? Mm, yes. I started making photographs professionally in 1976. Okay. And uh, 10 years later was... Uh, took the examination to be a, a wine judge. Okay. And at the prompting of uh, a very well-known entrepreneur named Donald Zeraldo. Okay. Who uh, who suggested that I I take the exam with a a variety of professionals from other areas, both viticulturally based and in wine marketing. So did so so the prompt so that's interests me. So I'm always interested in the connections, my background's philosophy academically. I love the whole notion of the little things making a big difference. Um, the prompting, tell me a little bit more about that. Was that was it a party? Did you show sort of some sort of skill that he hadn't seen before or was it just kind of a friendly gesture? Well he knew me as a uh, an entrepreneurial uh, photographer, and he knew that I had a fascination for the wine business as I had been purchasing wine at the newly founded Inskill Winery uh, in the 1970s. Okay. Uh, so I was not a, an uncommon face. I was also uh, affiliated with a number of his professional colleagues. Okay. And so. So there was a network there? There was a network there initially, and, and he felt that as a, as a highly skilled individual in one way, I could perhaps benefit the industry and myself by at least looking at uh, a palette test. And that was, it grew out of a, a competition that was held every year by the Ontario Wines and Spirits Association, which was to find the best blind taster in Ontario. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, and I won that oh, competition. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and that's really, I think, what prompted it. There was a, you know, a little Toronto Star uh, bio uh, about the photographer, wine photographer who had won this palette test. Right. Um, the palette test was, was quite complex, uh, and the people in the room tasting were generally 20 to 30 years my senior wow, and okay. took it very seriously. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I've, I've seen a little bit of that culture sort of from the outside, I guess you could say. I've never sort of stepped inside that circle, but it really does like the folks in, in there are, are taking these things pretty seriously. There's, there's no fooling around here. No, these are people with with uh, with means and very deep cellars and a great passion for <laughs> nice uh, metaphor. <laughs> yeah, and a great passion for the uh, for the grape, if you like. Right. So, so was there uh, was there kind of like uh, I, I, I want to talk more about uh, uh, photography as well, and 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 just I want to plant a seed here. You talk on your very s small bio on your website, uh, which is uh, stephenelphick dot com. By the way, that's S T E V E N E L P H I C K, and I'll be uh, mentioning that again near the end, Stephen. But you talk about truth and beauty, and I want I want to get to that in a second. But was there an aha moment for you with the wine? Or for the photography, was there, uh, on some level, aesthetically, that makes sense that you're doing both and you're obsessed with both to me. But can you talk a little bit more about when you knew that, wow, this was for me and I'm going to learn everything I possibly can about wine? Well, I have a slightly obsessive nature. And, <laughs> and 
I was teaching um, uh, at the Sheridan College a course on the history of photography. Okay. That really uh, encompassed the origins of image making and painting, uh, and right up into the, the current technology of the time. So my obsession with minutia oh, wasn't okay. wasn't exclusive to photography. I had a fascination for wine, and once I got into it, I w- I just applied the same kind of template to my learning about uh, about fine art photography and the history of it. I just took that to the next level with the viticultural world. So my interest then blossomed and expanded, and then I thought, well, you know, here's an opportunity for me to hybridize my hmm. uh, my two obsessions. Right. So that's where that yeah. started. So you're a man of details. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> so do you live in a very clean apartment or house? No, I live in a 19th century uh, farmhouse in, oh. nor- in northern Toronto. Oh, okay. Well, there, there could still be a lot of reasons to believe you're a man of details from the place you're living in, or not so much? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So, minutia for me uh, has got a bit of a pejorative edge, but it doesn't sound like it does for you. Well, the world is, is obviously full of uh, information, and it's the filter that we apply that makes it interesting. Sure. Uh, so in this particular case, the uh, academia obsession or the ability or interest in uh, pursuing a particular subject to a profound end is really, I think, what, what drove my interest in, in both both skills, both the viticulture and the... Mm. And the uh, or analogy, I suppose, and in uh, photography. I've always been deeply fascinated by technology, but also deeply fascinated by uh, landscape and beauty. And as a, an image maker, I did photograph a lot of landscape in the, in the early part of my career and wandered around sort of uh, uh, AKA Ansel Adams mm with uh, view cameras and uh, you know sheets of black and white film, and you could only take a couple of dozen frames a day because right. that was how many film holders you would carry with you. Right. So your ability to analyze landscape was fairly highly honed at that point because you rejected a lot of material. Right. Uh, because you only knew you had 20 pictures today. It's a far cry from the digital age where the economic... Uh, problem of of having large amounts of film is, is has largely gone away. Yes, you know, yeah. every time you took a picture, it was it was sort of a five dollar adventure. Right, right, of course. Um, yeah, plus all the also also the back end uh, <clears throat> darkroom time. So the same thing sort of happens with uh, with the wine side. You know, you're really quite fascinated, but you apply the filter and and you start being very particular about what you taste and, and have a great respect for the other professionals who manufacture the product mm-hmm. and their dedication as wine growers and, and viticulturalists and, and, and ultimately farmers who are completely dedicated to their craft. And that was a, that was a very interesting opportunity for me to look at that business, and mm-hmm. it seemed to have some mirrors in my business. Yeah. 
these people were highly skilled. They had enormous amounts of respect for uh, the land and were required to make a living. Yes. So there was a, uh, and, and still in the same way now, and we, I would say that we in Canada are seeing great advances in, in technology. We're certainly seeing, seen it in the, in the 30 or 40 years we've seen in uh, Canadian viticulture and, and winemaking. Yeah. Uh, as it's sort of mirrored in photography, too. Yeah, well, I mean, you talk about filters. I mean, it's, you know, you're using filters in both in both, uh, well, the, the winemakers are using filters of various kinds, uh, photographers, or as you call yourself, an image maker, using filters of various kinds. I think it's uh, an interesting metaphor for a whole lot of things. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's uh, that particular, I mean, both it's a, a phys- physical thing and a, we all use glass filters. Yes. The other guys use micropore filters. Right. But the ability to take, you know, large amounts of entropic information and distill it down to very organized information, both on the chemistry side and on the visual side, uh, are, are pretty good mirrors there as well. In one of our first conversations, I think, when we, when we, when we've only met, by the way, folks, uh, digitally, um, we were introduced through email and then uh, had a conversation. We haven't actually, Stephen and I haven't actually met face-to-face. We're going to sort that out in the near future. But, Stephen, you, you talked about blanking the other senses. Yeah, as a wine taster, I believe. But I'm wondering how that can apply to photography and other crafts, as you say. Well, I think that uh, cinematographers and photographers enter into the world of image making, and I, and I suppose painters too, where they uh, shut down uh, a lot of their sensory information and heighten other ones. So I'm not so much thinking about olfactory when I'm making photographs. I'm thinking about uh, a highly visual sense, but I'm not thinking much about visual when I'm tasting wine. As a matter of fact, you know, when when you really are in a wine judging situation, mm-hmm. the cursory glance to make sure that the wine is the right color is, is the first thing you do. Yes. But then you close your eyes. And sometimes you close your ears, too, and really try and concentrate on the olfactory side of that experience so that you're hunting for many things. You're hunting for the, the expression of terroir and of, of place. You're hunting for whether there's a flaw or whether it's just a profoundly magical experience for you. Mm. And so, you know, we're all hedonists at some point, and, mm-hmm. and Photographers are notorious for being uh, addicted to the um, instant gratification aspect of, of image making. Mm-hmm. And that's not a that similar mirror here in, in the wine judging arena where you, you're looking for instant gratification, but you're doing it by shutting down certain senses and heightening others. Uh, photographically, you enter into an entropic world with, you know, a lot of not very interesting information. And it's your job to frame that uh, in the perfect light and reject images that you're not interested in. Is the way, so is the way to become a, a great judge of wine partially by drinking a lot of wine? Is the way to become a great photographer, a great image maker, by taking a lot of photos? Because I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to get to is how do you hone that filter? How do you, how do you develop a framework that enables you to, to 
I guess, cast judgment one way or the other, or to actually, you know, take the picture and, um, and make a call about this uh, particular bottle of wine. I think exposure is, is a critical thing, and, and as many people have likened um, image making and it, perhaps even wine judging is being a, an athlete. It's repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, repeat and learn again, repeat and learn again. And I think that without much exposure to a broad variety of uh, wine products, you are limited to what you can say about them. Uh, and what we've seen currently, what we do see currently, is a predisposition worldwide to follow a style uh, which is not the style that we saw in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I guess historically, great red wines were, uh, you didn't drink your cellar, you drank your father's cellar. Right. You drank wines that were 25 or 30 years old. Well, in our world now, people are not interested in waiting 25 years. Right. They'd like something today. And I think the LCBO statistics say 94% of all product is consumed within 24 hours <laughs> of its purchase, and maybe yeah. even four hours of yeah. its purchase. Yeah, I had a friend recently say to me, I mean, why would you want to save a bottle of wine? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. and that's because winemaking technique has really uh, embraced that whole philosophy, which is, which is new. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I'm very... Uh, privileged to be able to taste 19th century wines with a small group of gentlemen who have that obsession. And that's a a learning experience, too. Yeah, I would imagine. I I don't know if you'll chuckle or be disappointed at this, but I opened a Pinot Noir recently that I had brought home from a trip in 2003. And you're probably going to tell me, I'm probably just, you know, I'm I'm showing my cards here, as they say, but... uh, it was, I think, it was definitely spoiled. I let it breathe for quite a quite a few hours, and uh, yeah, I just, I guess, I didn't make it. Didn't make it through my cellar, my makeshift cellar. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Well, if it's 2003, it's a pretty hot year in Europe, and it would be uh, maybe not as well structured as a as a 2002. Oh, okay. Um, the t- 2003 was the hottest summer in Europe in 100 years, and so certain varieties didn't get. Uh, the long hang times. They oh, basically okay. Okay. Were, were harvested early. All right, so I don't, I don't have to blame my seller is what you're saying. Not necessarily. <laughs> no, and it was a tough year for people. Right. Because a lot of people brought the stuff in early, but it didn't have a lot mm. of flavor. It just had lots of sugar. Mm, interesting. Okay. So a lot of it can be vintage variation. Yeah. Um, you, you, you also talked about in our first conversation about the process being highly analytical. And I, I wanted... I, want, I wanted you to unpack that for me. I, uh, backgrounds, philosophy, distinction between analytic and kind of continental, and here I am sort of, you know, pushing the divide forward, and I really don't have that intention. But there definitely does seem to be a distinction between those uh, those group of thinkers that are, I don't want to say left brain and right brain, but, you know, highly analytical. And so they're the philosophy of science and the mathematics and logic and so on. And then you've got this other group of thinkers that are not systematic at all, that are, that are you know, the French and the German thinkers in particular in the late, uh, I guess, mid, mid-20th century, late 19th century and so on. And much more intuitive, much more kind of um, poetic almost in a way. And I would think to be a great photographer or a great wine judge, you've I would think you've got to lean more towards the intuitive side than the analytical side. Could could you talk about that a bit? I think that um, with many things, there's a template that we follow that's yeah. 
that's fairly well defined. Okay. Um, certainly on the wine judge side, you sit down, you, you are presented with, with a product in a glass, you look at it, you smell it, you make small factory and, and tactile notes, and then you ultimately make a decision based <coughs> on uh, historical reference. Okay. And um, I think that that uh, is not that different a template in photography. You sit down, you look at your environment, you make you assess uh, where you are in that environment, what the light is doing in that environment, mm-hmm. or you're creating light to in the, in the studio situation to provide you with a very particular kind of environment that mirrors, uh, let's say, bright uh, early morning sun or or something very. Uh, subtle and, and quiet, like overcast day. Mm-hmm. Those templates are followed again and again and again, to the point where they're just kind of in your back pocket, hmm. and you don't think of them in terms of uh, analysis anymore. You just employ them, so it kind of frees you from um, uh, once you've learned those those rules. You're then free to, I guess approach things on a more intuitive basis. Mm. It's like... Without, kind of like writing poetry. So many, yeah, many, without the tools, how yeah. do you write poetry? You know, right, how, right. how do you... I mean, I, I've been writing for a number of years as well, and I find it a profoundly uncomfortable experience. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've done a little bit, and I find it... Uh, I love it, and yet I, I find it infuriating uh, at the same time, and, and very difficult, actually, to do. And I know a number of writers, uh, quite a number of writers, who can sit down... And, and write, but they have very particular tool sets that they've honed mm-hmm. over a great period of time. So then it becomes, you've got the tools, then it becomes a more intuitive world because the tools just come to you. you so you've built the foundation. When you, you mentioned historical reference, what do you mean by that exactly? Is that, is that your schooling that uh, you've done? or is that, is yeah, that, it, yeah. And I know in, in many people it's... it's uh, uh, University degrees, and many people, it's the school of hard knocks. Right, sure. Um, all of which is is incredibly valuable. And as you say, you you are educated every day. It's just, uh, is that education formal or informal? Are you obsessed with information um, retention and perpetual learning, or are you willing to sit down and and just settle for what you yeah. what you learned when when right, you were twenty right, years old? Right. Um, I, we can't talk about wine and not talk about Sideways. Uh, I, I don't know where that movie sits in your uh, your top ten or your top hundred list, but it's certainly uh, on one of my lists. Loved it a lot. And, and uh, Virginia Madsen, I believe, her character talks. There's a, one beautiful scene, and you and I chatted a bit about it the first time we, we talked, but she talks about the life of wine. And um, I watched it a couple of days ago. Uh, days ago, as I was thinking about our conversation coming up, and and she talks about the evol. I mean, it's really. I mean, it's beautiful. It's poetic. She just it, she just rolls off her tongue. I mean, do you buy into that? Would you say that she's she's right about that? I think that uh, you know scripts are romanticized. Everything, <laughs> yes, of uh, course. because that's their job. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the great fascination for me that for that film was uh, having sort of trek through that little piece of uh, Santa Barbara or Santa Maria Valley um, area where the, the cast goes. Mm-hmm. It is a mecca for uh, California Pinot Noir. It is a very special place. They do 
the farmers there are very obsessed and very, very uh, clear about trying to, to reach a certain pinnacle of uh, expression. And philosophically, uh, I suppose you could have any one of them discuss uh, endpoints for their wine. Right. But they're all trying to mirror uh, the great wines of Burgundy. The particular terroir doesn't necessarily mirror that, but perhaps uh, one of the viticultural regions, which is uh, a sub-appellation called Calera, the gentleman uh, smuggled vines back from the great uh, vineyard of Riesburg in Burgundy. Huh. To the, so his obsession uh, starts with, how can I get the best plant material into a terroir and create the next great wine in the world. Right. Riesburg being one of the most extraordinary wines of the world and most expensive. Right. So, philosophically, everybody is grounded in philosophy. In fact, the viticultural world is full of philosophers, strangely enough, hmm. uh, who are winemakers and hmm. own wineries. Hmm. Um, uh, Len Penichetti from Cape Springs, I believe, has a doctorate in philosophy and was teaching at York University. And his winemaker, uh, Ange Pavan, was one of his uh, master students. Hmm. So philosophy is not uh, unknown in the wine world. In fact, it's, it's quite normal. In vino veritas. It is. Yeah. Um, so you would consider yourself a bit of a philosopher? Well, I don't know that that's uh, an easy identification. I would have to go to Wikipedia and look. <laughs> right. Well, how about a pers uh, the pursuit of wisdom? I mean, you, you talk about truth and beauty on your website and, yes. and your bi biography. And, and, I mean, you talk about yourself being obsessed. I certainly know a lot of uh, uh, philosophers and academics who are obsessed with an idea and unpacking it in various ways. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that truth and beauty uh, distinction. But also, uh, would you call yourself a curious person? Extraordinarily so. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I have a... Uh, a, my long deceased grandfather took me to the library every Saturday morning from mm. the age of about four, um, and that was our job: is to go and and be uh, engrossed in books. Right. From a very early age, and books were to be revered, and inf and knowledge was to be revered. So it's uh, it stayed with me. I'm certainly curious, and certainly try to explore new things all the time. And yet you wouldn't call yourself an academic, or would you? Only occasionally. Only occasionally. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, because it seems to me, um, well, I mean, it sounds like you were on your way to becoming an academic almost, and with your your grandfather? Yes. Um, taking his library, that I, th I think is wonderful, wonderful that you have that memory, but also that, you know, just, you know, for me, books are just central to pretty much everything their doorways to other individuals their doorways to other lives and cultures and so on and 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 there's a sense in which i sort of cherish books as well um and without uh, idolizing them if that makes sense and um yeah so it it sounds though like you kind of brought various disparate sort of worlds together in and and as you as you learn how to make money doing this, you know, which I think is wonderful that this isn't just something that you do because you love it. You've been able to, to, uh, to live as well. I mean, and one only has to look at your website briefly to know that you're, you're a pro at what you do. I think that, you know, I, 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 it's sort of an odd, um, 
confession, but it it is in some ways my sacrament. It is what hmm. I am. I am. I don't want to do anything else. Right. I feel compelled to make photographs. Right. It isn't kind of an optional part of my life. Um, it may be because my family is, you know, composed of sort of a number of painters that go back a, a few generations, and mm-hmm. uh, I consider myself a bit of a lazy painter, if you like. Right. But it, it, I don't think about doing uh, anything but what it is I'm doing, and I try and continue to move forward and provide myself with more and more uh, challenges within the framework of, of this business. Um, we just finished a big book last year, uh, which was about 1,600 hours work wow. on, on analysis. And it was uh, a lot of very early mornings and late evenings, uh, waiting for the sun to go up or come down, either or, and uh, was an enormous challenge for me visually, as I had to basically record the same thing over and over again, but provide very particular signatures for each um, property that I visited. And so we did that with color, and we did that with light. Right. And it took uh, my world of um, very controlled image making and made me think about things in a different way. It mm-hmm. made me think a lot about color, which is uh, which was quite exciting, too. So compartmentalize um, a project. Uh, on Monday, you would be looking at a property you'd go in and you say, well, the colors here that are profound are cyan and red. So that's the color signatures that we'll look for hmm. in this particular property. Hmm. And on Tuesday, you're somewhere else, which is maybe just across the street, but you're looking for new color signatures so that you can differentiate one from another right. visually in a large volume, which is going to hold three or four or 500 pages, so that the reader is... Uh, stimulated and continually excited by uh, page to page. And, th- and this book uh, is is just looking at different vineyards, basically in Ontario. It's, uh, it's wineries and vineyards. Oh, okay. And you know, if you go outside into the world at large and stand in the middle of a vineyard, you see in a uh, a landscape that's profoundly blue and green, and maybe not that very much variation in it. And if you have to do that every day, then you have to kind of look for something that's not blue and green. Right. So that means going at sunrise and going at sunset and um, employing all your senses or your visual senses to get you to a new place every day and get you stimulated every day. You, um, you, you've called yourself an image maker several times uh in our conversation today, and I'm wondering, I mean, is that a conscious decision on your part? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, some of the material I do uh, doesn't look much like photography. Interesting. Uh, okay. It looks maybe more like um, uh, illustration, or, and it's not material that's on my website. It's, it's new material that I'm, I'm working on. But as I get older, I tend to, things are getting less cluttered. Right and uh, and more pure and are relating less to um, it's perhaps a rejection of the of the material that I see in the world of highly uh, organized and very noisy photographs that have hmm. a lot going on in them. I tended to move away from that into into very quiet images that are 
are perhaps a, a more zen-like or more huh. instructive of positive-negative space and are enigmatic, and people don't necessarily know what they're looking at. Right. Uh, you use the word sacrament, it almost sounds like there's a spiritual quality to some of the images you're taking, or at least you're, you're trying to create. Well, not necessarily uh, content-wise, but it, it, there is always a kind of uh, spirituality in, in making the photographs. Uh, you put yourself in an altered state because you are blanking out the rest of the world and all you're doing right. is making, making photographs. Right. And I think that altered state is, 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 is common for many people in a lot of different things. I think musicians carry it. I think uh, photographers and painters, uh, cinematographers, uh, lots of people do that. It's just that you don't express it very often. Do you think there's... um. Because of the, you know, I, I forget what the crazy statistics are with regard to images. We see, I don't know, 13,000 a day or something ridiculous. Somebody needs to check my, my numbers on that. But, um, uh, you know, when you look at the Internet, you've got, you know, our browsers on our Blackberries and our iPhones, television, magazines, newspapers, et cetera, et cetera, billboards and so on. So it's hundreds a day. Do you think there's uh, something about the ubiquity of the image that has, um, hmm, I was going to say uh, maligned the the photograph the image what it actually can be uh so so i guess in a sense we've we've lost this ability to i don't know make a distinction between something that's artful and spiritual and holistic and meaningful and it's just become a mere ad you know kind of a, a simulation if you will i think that we we have an enormous amount of stimulus and i think that the ability to disseminate the information quickly um and without filter again uh, is a, is troublesome sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that uh, by going into institutions like art galleries, and <clears throat> you know, there is a filter there, and it's an enormous filter. And mm -hmm. and, we, and a lot of the uh, ephemera has been cut away, and we're just presented with the best. Um, we're not presented with the best so much, and and I don't know how much people uh, in, do filter anymore. It's I, I just don't have that kind of information. Mm -hmm. um, I find that there's, there is too much information on a regular basis that I'm confronted with. Uh, and again, this may be my current image making, may be a reaction to that where I, I try and distill it to something that's, that's less and less. Right. Um, and that's really a very uh, interesting uh, observation um, worldwide to see how much material is available mm -hmm. uh, electronically. Mm -hmm. I think that within the large cities uh, where there's internet access all the time um, is different than perhaps uh, 200 miles from a large right. city. Right. Where people aren't as obsessed with technology. Right, and as being connected so often, yeah. Yeah, so I think there's a regionality aspect to it as well. So believe it or not, we're sort of we're coming coming to the end of our uh, our interview, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about your book, but but also just about well Canadian wines in general. You you got in uh, both some thirty years ago, and you've talked about revolutions, and you've talked about trying to recreate that experience from the the greatest Burgundy wines in California, and so on. Um, where, where are we at uh, from an Ontario perspective? I certainly am enjoying a lot of whites these days. I'm doing a lot of experimenting with uh, Canadian wines and uh, par par for various different reasons. But I've, I've heard we, we're knocking it out of the park when it comes to whites, but not so much with reds. Uh, it's still a cool climate that we're in. Um, 
we're not in the warmest climate like uh, California, although coastal California is pretty cold as well. Uh, white wines were certainly, we were described as an American, by an American wine writer as one of the great undiscovered Chardonnay producers in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was just last year. And so we are now seeing uh, a concentration certainly on that particular varietal on Chardonnay. And the winemakers who are making the most extraordinary wines certainly have made wines in Burgundy and use the Burgundy model. Because it's cool here, we get, uh, we're not obsessed with high sugar levels. And I've tasted uh, our wines in contact with, with great Burgundies, and they stand up. Hmm. They are extraordinarily good wines. Hmm. So in terms of red wines, in a good year, hot year, we will see delicious wines. There's great winemaking going on. Uh, sometimes it's a mirror of uh, world appellations that have given us uh, reference points, and sometimes they're different. Uh, we're beginning to see great uh, Gamay here, although Gamay is perhaps not the, uh, the most known grape variety. Mm-hmm. It's the grape variety of Beaujolais. But we are still looking at highly skilled men and women making delicious wines that will rival anything in the world. Wow. In terms of longevity, I, have, I can't say that Ontario Reds have the longevity of other places. Right, okay. Um, but I can certainly... So you're not seeing a lot of uh, Ontario wines in people's cellars at this point? You've seen a lot of Ontario wines. You're, you're not going to see a lot. You're not. You're not going to get ten and fifteen and twenty years out of a uh, Ontario wine at this point. Um, I've tasted wines back uh, recently with some of the winemakers uh-huh. back into the '80s and early '90s, and I think that they are not. I think you are absolutely right. right. They are to be enjoyed in their youth for their freshness and, right. and right. brightness, and that is also not uncommon with places like Beaujolais. Beaujolais, right, right. you know, you don't drink cold Beaujolais very often. Right. And uh, Loire Valley, same thing. Yeah, it's not necessarily negative. It is not negative. Yeah, you just have yeah. to know that it is not, it is not Burgundy. Yeah, it's, it's not it, Bordeaux. It's Ontario. Well, this, and this is where, you know, your notion of historical reference becomes so important, right? Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen a lot of wine drinkers that are quite snooty about what they drink, and they're not interested in drinking Ontario wine. So, yeah, no, it's, um, I'm, a, I'm a wine drinker. <laughs> Well, it's reference points, right? Yes, absolutely. It's points. And, yeah. and, and, and I, I understand that completely. Would I drink Ontario Cabernet over Great Bordeaux? Well, <laughs> right. that's a good question. <laughs> if money is no object. That's right. You know. That's right. Yeah, who's but, buying the bottles? Yeah. Yeah, and, and we are seeing... Uh, and, and I, I talked to one of the winemakers recently, and he, he said, you know, it, there is a little bit of Emperor's New Clothes going on here. Mm. And... He's convinced that we should be competing in a uh, in a different price point, and his hmm. philosophy is going to drive his farming and his marketing of his product over the next two three years. Where they have looked at fifty dollar price points in in let's say Burgundy and fifty dollar price points in Ontario, hmm. and uh, it's apples and apples. You right. Know, you can, right. Can you? pay $50 for one and have the same experience as $50 right. for the other. Right. And the answer is perhaps not. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, there's so many, so many factors. One of the things I've got to say just before we sign off is, I've, I, I've, I've uh, joked with other friends when drinking wines. I don't consider myself to have a very mature or experienced palate, but I do know what I like, and I certainly enjoy wine. Um, but I love the way connoisseurs, judges, uh, people, uh, writers, uh, speak about wine. Did we? Are, are, did we just drink the same glass of wine? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's just, and this is where you come back to that whole life of wine, you know, the, the crisp nature of it and it's bold. And I mean, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. It's do you, do you have a little wine thesaurus that you carry around with you? I'm sorry. Uh, do you have a little wine thesaurus that you carry around with you looking for ways of describing the taste? It's just, it's marvelous to me. Uh, no, but I've practiced a lot. <laughs> I can imagine. And I think that the, the one thing that you're not seeing that's being uh, explored enormously in California is the notion that, that there's uh, physiological differences between tasters. Mm, okay. That the great. number of uh, papilla on the tongue and how people perceive things. Yeah. So there's like super tasters, tolerant tasters, and intolerant tasters. Right. Some people, the intolerance like, you know, kind of sweet, syrupy, big, sure. flavorful wines. And the super tasters are, find those wines extremely hard to manage. <laughs> That's such a great way to put it. Yeah, hard to manage. Well, and, and so we're back to perspective. We are back to perspective, yeah. and, and everybody is right. Yeah. If you're not a, like, we, judges are often super tasters, and, and so you get really bogged down if the wines are clumsy and sweet, where intolerant tasters might like everything on the table. Yes. Right. So there's got to be something out there for everybody. Yeah, I hope I'm somewhere in between, <laughs> being intolerant and super taster. Most, most people are, and, yeah, yeah. and it also uh, branches out into what other things you like in, yeah, of in course. the world of, yeah. do you do like black coffee, do you like right. Coca-Cola, right. Sure. Yeah. the type of scotch you drink maybe? Could that, Pretty much. Yeah. It, it yeah. is, uh, each taster yeah. is no. based on, uh, the, base, the tasting um, elements that people enjoy puts them in certain categories. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's uh, Stephen Elphick. Uh, for those listening, that's uh, Stephen with a V, S-T-E-V-E-N-E-L-P-H-I-C-K.com. Check out his site. Uh, quite a portfolio there. And uh, do you want to just talk really quickly about the book that uh, it's just recently come out, Stephen? It's called Spectacular Wineries Ontario. It was commissioned by a publisher out of Texas, surprisingly enough. Interesting. Okay. Um, it was an opportunity for me to visit wineries from Windsor to Picton and from Niagara to Georgian Bay. Wow. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting geographical overview and um, I think that it's a, a visual feast. So. No, that's great. Well, thanks very much for your contribution and for, for chatting with me today. It's, uh, thanks for joining us on Face to Face. It's a great pleasure, David. Thank you very much.